Well, last week we started the new series, The Best Day Ever, and we talked about God's promises are the best ever. We walked through the promise of His Son, through the Passover, and um, how that was foreshadowing to the coming of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb that was shed over the doorpost for the protection of the family was the blood of the Lamb of God shed for our sins. How many of you guys can remember when you first started dating and that your, your spouse or whoever it was that you were in love with at that time and you just could not be around them enough? Like just being in their presence, you soaked it up every moment and then whenever you're away from them, you could not wait to be back in their presence. You guys remember that? All right, I got one hand back there. Gary remembers he's getting some brownie points from Cindy today. Yes, all right. That is the way I want us to think about as we talk about today, we're going to talk about God's presence is the best ever. And I want us to think about the presence of God in that same way way as what it was with our spouse just thinking about wanting to be in the presence of God we're going to stay in Exodus today but let me catch you up on what's happened since last week the nation of Israel has left Egypt they're in the wilderness and in chapter 20 Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and he stays up there meeting with God in the presence of God just a little longer than what he had planned and so the people get scared. Where's Moses? Is he gone? I'm scared. I feel vulnerable. I feel all alone. What has happened to Moses, our leader? And so they say, let's do this. Let's make an idol that we can worship. Let's make an idol that kind of resembles God that we can worship that will make us feel safe. Yeah, that's a great idea. So what they do is they all take off their earrings, their nose rings, their necklaces, their watches, the gold caps off of their chariots, the rims of their chariots. They melt them all down and they make this golden calf and they all get naked and they all start worshiping it. It's a crazy story. If you want to read it, go back to Exodus chapter 20. This week and read that. So you get this image. Now imagine what God feels like at this point. He's meeting with Moses up on Mount Sinai. They're down in the valley, and he sees the people of Israel, these people that he has brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, promises them this land, and he is giving them the, gold, the, the Ten Commandments, and they have made this golden calf that they are worshiping. God hates idolatry. He hates it. You have Moses up meeting with God, receiving the Ten Commandments, and all the people of Israel down in their version of City Walk getting jiggy with it with a golden calf. God hates it. He hates it. So let's pick up our text in Exodus chapter 31 to see what God's response is this morning. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. 
Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But here's the thing. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's saying, I don't want to have anything else to do with you. I'm done. I'm going to fulfill my promise. I promised you this land, and I want to give it to you, but I don't want to be around you. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. What Moses is saying to God is, what makes us distinct, God, is that you're with us. We don't want to go anywhere if you're not with us. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim you my, before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for a man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and, I will, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen." All right, as we read this story, we see that God is just, he is upset with the nation of Israel. He's upset that Moses is gone for just a little while longer than what he said he was going to be gone. And these people just lose their minds. They forget what God has done for them. They forget all of the plagues that God threw upon the Egyptians to pull them out of slavery. They forget how God parted the Red Sea as the Egyptian army was bearing down upon them to bring them back into slavery. And how they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. He forgets how they have, he has been with them all throughout the wilderness. Just this one little bit and the people of, of, of Israel forget God. So God is just, I've had enough. But as he, then he says, you saw at the beginning of this chapter, he says, look at the people. And he goes, I will, the land that I promised them, I'll do what I said. I'll vanish, vanquish all of their enemies. I will make them prosperous. 
I will take care of them. He says, I'm going to give, fulfill all of my promises, but my presence is not going to go with them because I'm so frustrated with them, I'll probably end up killing them. (laughs) And Moses' response is so very important. He says, God, if your presence is not with us, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. Do you get that? God offered to defeat their enemies, bless their crops, give them the land, but just not go with them. And Moses said, without your presence, we don't want to go. And we see that the people of the nation of Israel, they mourned not having the presence of God. So here's one of my questions for you today. What if God promised all the blessings of life to you? A good marriage, good health, good family, good career. All of the things that we associate with the American dream. What if God promised all of those to you, but he said, I will not go with you. Would we take it? It's a good question. That's a soul-searching question. Would we take all of the luxuries of life, all of the things that people associate with a good life, would we trade that to not have the presence of God? Moses says no. Because God's presence is the point of Christianity. The whole point of Exodus is that Israel might come to know God. One of the things I love about this book is that God continually reveals himself, reveals about his attributes and his character over and over again throughout the book of Exodus. He wasn't just delivering Israel as an act of political compassion, but he was doing it so that they might know him more. And by know him, I don't mean know about him or know what he wants, but know, like you know a friend. That's the goal, personal, intimate relationship with God. That's one of the things that makes the Bible approach to God very different from other religions. Other religions major on what God wants you to do. Rules you need to keep. Rituals you need to observe, but the Bible focuses on knowing God, not doing. When God leads them out of slavery, he joins them by a pillar of cloud by day and by fire by night. And then they would set down the tabernacle as they would make camp. And in that tabernacle is where God, the temple of God and the presence would set right there down in the middle of the camp. The presence of God was there among the nation of Israel. When Jesus was born on the earth, one of the names the angel said to call him was Emmanuel, which means God with us. One of the surprising things that Jesus said while he was here on this earth that the Pharisees and Sadducees just lost their minds over was that he himself was the temple. And Jesus looked at the temple and said, if you 
tear the temple down, I will raise it up in three days. And like, what, Jesus? What are you talking about? It took us 40 years to build this temple. What are you talking about, build it in three days? They're like, this is crazy. The writer says they didn't realize the temple he was talking about was his own body. He was the place where God lived. We look in the garden back in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, God walked with them. When the people saw the temple, they in the midst, the tabernacle, in the midst of their camp as they journeyed around in the wilderness. They looked at it and said, God was there. His presence was with us. As they were in the temple, the temple was built and sat on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. They could look and see that God and his presence was there with us. When Jesus came to this earth, called Emmanuel, they could look at it and say, Jesus is there with us on this earth. And now we as believers who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have the Spirit who is within us. You see all through Scripture, the presence of God is so important. What man lost when we were cast out of the Garden of Eden was God's presence. And so that's what our hearts have longed for ever since that Time was the presence to know God again, to be reunited with Him, and to know Him, to have Him be again our Father and our friend. You may have not realized that, but that is the longing of your heart. That is the longing of every heart on this earth. We try to fill it with all of these other things. But it's having the presence of God is what our hearts are yearning for. The human condition is one of nakedness. We long to be clothed again with the presence of God. That's what it's all about. God's presence restored to your life. And that's what makes us distinct. If you look in verse 16, Moses said to him, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, for every other people on the face of the earth? He's saying, God, what makes Israel distinct is that you're with us. Without you, we have nothing. There's nothing to separate us outside of your presence. What sets us apart, not simply what we believe or how we live, but the presence of God with us. So let me ask you another question. Is that what we are known for? Is that the main description of Christianity in your life? When I ask you about being a Christian, will you start telling me about your personal knowledge of God and communion with God? Usually, you ask people about the religion, they start telling you about what they believe and how they keep the tenets of the faith and all of these other things. But that is not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is knowing God. The presence of God. So my next question is, what is the presence of God? For many... To say God is with us simply means 
we're successful. God be with you, we say sometimes as people leave, or Godspeed, if you've ever heard that. You know, that, that phrase, that's kind of like, have a safe trip, or hope things work out. You know, those kind of, of phrases that we, we have used. The presence of God doesn't mean just success, because you see in this chapter that God says, I will bless you. He said, I'm going to conquer all your enemies. I'm going to give you the land that I promised. I'm going to make your crops grow. I'm going to give you everything. So the presence of God does not mean success. It's possible to be very blessed and live completely apart from the presence of God. We see that today. There are some of the most godless people on the face of the earth that live in luxury that we will look at and say, oh, they're blessed. So what is the presence of God? This chapter shows you exactly what it is. Remember at the end of chapter 33, Moses says to God, let me see your glory. And God says, all right, I'll pass right in front of you. In verse chapter 34, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God proclaimed his name. The Lord passed before him and, and, and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God revealing himself to the people. Don't miss this. How does God show himself? He does it by proclaiming his name. What is the presence of God? It's a firsthand heart knowledge of the name of God. His character, his size, his immensity of his love for you. That is knowing God. You know, imagine if I came up to you and told you, tell me about your husband, or tell me about your wife. And you started with, well, my wife's name is, and you know, you fill it out, I'll, I'll do it for myself today. My wife's name is Rachel, her, her maiden name was Rachel Lynn Roten, and she was delivered by a doctor named Fred uh, out in California. She majored in missions in college. She has a nasty or a gnarly like scar on her arm. And you know, I could rattle off all these facts about my wife, and you might be impressed with all that I know about her. That's totally different than if you say, no, tell me about your wife. And I tell you how much I enjoy getting home from work when I used to go to the office and come home. <laughs> And I would just enjoy being in her presence, around her. How she seems to just know what to say when I'm down. How I really know what she loves, what she desires, what she enjoys. That's knowledge. That's knowing someone beyond the facts. There are so many people that know the facts of God. I would even say that there are religion professors in universities all across this country that know more facts about God than most of the pastors in this country. 
but they don't know God. They don't understand the presence of God. Knowledge beyond facts. That's the kind of knowledge that says, I'm just really tired. And I want to absorb myself in their presence. The presence of my friend. There's a difference in, in knowing about and knowing, loving, and desiring. You guys get the difference between these two? Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, said, Sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn and God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exalting thoughts of God. When I enjoy the sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my own estate. It seems that at such times I am at such a loss that I cannot bear it. And I cannot bring myself to even take my eye from this glorious object. I cannot bear to turn my eye to myself or to anything else. Do we have that desire to know God? How do we get the presence of God? We read the verse back in verse 7. It says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, down verse 11. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Joshua would be the person who would follow Moses as the leader of Israel, a young man, Scripture says, would not depart from the tent. What do you see here from Joshua? A desire to know God. An expressed, earnest, continual prayer, meeting with God continually. More than anything, Joshua seems to want to know God, so he took time to be in his presence. We live in an instant world, but that's not how relationships work. It takes time. You build them over days, weeks, months, years. The presence of God comes into your life when you seek it more than anything else, an earnest prayer, an earnest, continual prayer. This also means, by the way, the greatest desires, you express them in prayer. It's apparent that whatever was going on in Joshua's life, whatever he needed help with, he wanted to know God more because he was always at the tent of meaning. When you pray, let me ask you, what are you praying for most? Are you praying for all of the things that you want in life? Those aren't bad things. God says bring those as petition to me. God wants to hear those, but I would say the greatest thing that we can pray for is to know God more. God, reveal yourself 
more to me. Allow my heart to desire you more, to love you more. I want to know more of you, God. Some of you are in pain and praying, God, to fix whatever current situation that you might be in, whether that's a a relationship situation or a health or a job situation. And you're praying, asking God to fix that. But what if one of those purposes in your pain was, was to allow you a chance to know God more? And what if you spend so much time bitter and angry at him and everyone else that you think has wronged you that you miss out on what was supposed to be some of God's sweetest work in your life. Here you are praying for God to, to remove this trial, to remove this tribulation out of your life, but in retrospect you look back and you say that through that God was allowing me to know him more. My faith grew. My love and my desire for him Grew, but here I was in my, my sin and my ignorance, and I was praying for that trial and tribulation to be removed from me. But really, God was using it to grow me, to reveal Himself to me. So the presence of God comes into your life when you seek it more than anything else. So I ask you, do you have the presence of God in your life? Because God's presence is the best ever. It begins with a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how the presence of God starts. Because of your sin and my sin, we are separated from a holy God. But Jesus died as a substitute For our sin. If you receive what he offers you as a gift and allow him to take control of your life and be your Lord and Savior, he then restores the presence of God in your life. Because when God looks at us as we have become a follower of him and we've given Christ our life, Christ takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness, allowing us to have the right relationship allowing God to have the presence in our life. I know in Christ that God's favor is toward me and that I am God's friend, not because of anything that I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. If you've never received the salvation gift, Today can be your day of salvation. So you can have the presence of God in your life. Why do you want it? Because God's presence is the best. God's presence is the best. Let's pray.